taking the long view that has served her so well throughout. She's never gotten caught in the moment of um, uh, immediate urgent type political crisis or something like that. She had an ability to see the long view and she certainly saw it with Churchill and she treated him incredibly graciously and he certainly was deeply in love with her. She got off to such a remarkable start uh, with Churchill. And um, then she had in total, what, uh, uh, 12 Canadian prime ministers to deal with. And uh, I believe that Liz Truss was the 15th British prime minister, plus the ones from Australia and all these other nations. And she was this extraordinary listener. She was incredibly well read and she was extremely well informed. And she was very, very interested. And that came along so obviously everywhere she went and every time she spoke. On September 8th, 2022, after 70 years and 214 days on the throne, the world lost Queen Elizabeth II, Canada's queen, and probably the most recognizable figure in the world. Growing up in Canada, I know that I'm just like many kids who saw the Queen as a grandmother, a figure in their life that was a constant, the North Star, whether it was the portrait in the hockey rink, on our currency, or in the numerous buildings and schools across the country named in her honour. Queen served in uniform, served her role in state as head of the Commonwealth. She was a constant in our life, and that constant left us, and the world was truly shaken. Welcome to a special edition of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham, and someone who in 2015 became a member of Her Majesty's Privy Council, now His Majesty's Privy Council for Canada. This is an important topic for us to explore the passing of our sovereign, what that means for Canada, her impact, and making sure we can keep her legacy alive by educating Canadians just about how special Queen Elizabeth II was. So Blue Skies is very fortunate to be joined today by an exceptional Canadian who made the journey to the United Kingdom, was in those lineups you saw of the mourners, over 250,000 people waited hours in line, queues that were kilometers long to pay their respects to the Queen lying in state. A somber but inspiring show of affection. Roddy McKenzie is a lawyer, an author, a volunteer, a monarchist, and a patriot. He was a lawyer for over 30 years. Called to the bar in Alberta and British Columbia, he taught law at the UBC Law School. He's a volunteer, recognized for his work with the scouting movement, with Royal Canadian Air Force Associations, with the Clan Mackenzie in Canada, and is a life member of the Monarchist League. He's an author with several exceptional contributions to The Finest Hour, a Churchill publication, including an exceptional one exploring the relationship between Sir Winston Churchill and Queen Elizabeth II. He also has a book on its way, Churchill's Greatest Triumph, Bomber Command, something for me as an RCAF veteran, I'm looking forward to reading. 
His volunteerism led to Roddy being recognized with the Canada 125 medal and Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee medal. He proudly, proudly bore both medals on his jacket as he waited in line to mourn Her Majesty. Roddy, welcome and thank you for being part of this special Blue Skies podcast. Thank you. So let me start there. And I've seen the pictures of you um, alongside thousands of people in uh, true proper British Canadian style, waiting in the queue properly, talking, but reflectful. What made you or inspired you to travel to the United Kingdom to be part of that truly special uh, ceremony? And, And what inspired you to go? Well, it started with the Queen Mother's funeral. I was watching it on television in 2002, and Mark Kelly of the CBC was interviewing people in the crowd uh, and discovering that Canadians had gone to London and in great curiosity was asking why they did that. And I thought their answers made so much sense that I asked the question, what am I doing sitting here in Vancouver looking at a television screen? I should have gone to London. And so I just made a rule from that point forward I would do that. I went for uh, Prince um, William's wedding. I was a CTV commentator for Prince Harry's wedding. I went to the Diamond Jubilee celebrations, the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. I just automatically did these things because of that experience back in 2002. And so when my cell phone said, the queen is dead, those four words, which absolutely astonished me, thinking because of her meetings with the prime ministers two days earlier, that she was just fine. The queen is dead. I immediately contacted Air Canada and I immediately flew to London to be part of that whole experience. Now, that is fascinating. And, you know, the queen mother and that uh, commemoration of her life inspiring you to to be a part of of subsequent gatherings. Did you grow up with a deep affection for the monarchy? Yes, my family had a lot of respect for the monarchy. My father was a Lancaster pilot and bomber command in the war. And my dad told me that officially we were fighting for God, king and country, but that God and country were rather nebulous concepts. And being an officer of the Royal Canadian Air Force, he had sworn his allegiance to the king. He said we were very much fighting for the king. And then I remember as a little bit, I was three and a half years old when the queen became queen. And I remember... uh, how huge that time was. So she came into my life in an enormous way and and essentially stayed that way. Yeah, I think a lot of people that have a deep respect and affection for uh, our constitutional monarchy have stories like that. Myself, I can relate. My my late mother, uh, Molly, who immigrated to Canada from uh, Sheffield as as a very young girl, uh, got me up early to watch the the royal wedding of Prince Charles and and Lady Diana, and um, that fascinated me from that point on. So often those attachments, in your case, your father's uh, commission to the king and and serving the RCAF, uh, those those create a an affection for life, and that led you to being one of those two hundred and fifty thousand mourners. What was it like in those lineups? People seemed um, just so you know, orderly, but also warm, but also reflective, you know, did people talk? How, how, how long was your wait? Describe that process a little bit. 
Well, the wait turned out to be exactly nine hours because one of the people I made friends with the moment I stepped into the line noticed that it was 11.20. And then when we emerged uh, from Westminster Hall after seeing uh, the Queen's coffin, I looked up and Big Ben said 8.20. So it was exactly nine hours to the minute that we were in the lineup. And it was... It was a, a remarkable nine hours. I mean, it was it was a wonderful nine hours, and in a lot of ways, uh, people were very friendly. The the British are incredibly well organized, extremely well organized. They looked after all details. They had all kinds of porta potties around. They had all kinds of other things. That it was as smooth as silk. It was really looked after carefully, and they used hundreds of. British scouts uh, to facilitate things as well. And that made a big difference. I'm a Queen Scout. I was presented by uh, um, Georges Vanier, the second Canadian Prime Minister, uh, Governor General of Canada, Georges Vanier, the uh, Queen Scouts Award. And uh, one of the British Queen Scouts took a real liking to me. I think we're probably now going to be lifelong friends. And for half the uh, nine and a half, he was actually with me the whole time and essentially then looked after everything. But the Scouts made a, a big, big difference to make sure people had water, people were looked after, and nobody was in distress, there were no difficulties, and everybody was there for a special reason, to pay homage to Queen Elizabeth II. So this wasn't a lineup of people buying tickets for a rock concert or a sporting event or something. This is people who had a shared admiration for Queen Elizabeth that was so great that they had this enormous desire to pay personal respects. It, it was a magical lineup in many ways. And also, so London is one of the world's most interesting cities, and the route chosen, most of it was along the south bank of the uh, Thames River, which tourists don't see nearly as much of, uh, all the great views of St. Paul's and uh, all of the other major buildings and things that are on the south side, etc. I mean, every block was fascinating. It, uh, the whole walk was absolutely fascinating, and the people were wonderful. I, I can detect how special it was just in in the tone of your voice and describing it and some of the friendships forged and and really a life experience um when you finally after many many hours nine hours got to West, westminster hall uh what did you do did you just reflect did you say a prayer did you uh, salute uh bow uh, we saw lots of various personal tributes what what did you do well, that part is really interesting because, of course, once we got over the uh, Lambeth Bridge, we thought we were just turning right and into the parliamentary yard and going into the building, but we weren't. There was this zigzag back and forth like we have for passport control in airports, and I think there were about 70 of those zigzags. You almost got dizzy with the, the humanity of the whole thing, just all these huge numbers of people, and it took an hour to get through that when we thought we were about ready to enter the building. So when finally that all came to conclusion and we entered the building they had about 20 of these uh, machines set up just like in airports where you go through incredible security control but they probably had four times as many people at each machine as airports do so it was as smooth as silk and all of them were being as nice as they could possibly be to get you through all of that security and then by that point now they had a very uh, uh controlled line of a single file type line and you went into the main hall and that hall was built in 1097, if you can believe it, by William Rufus, the uh, King William II, the son of the Conqueror. It was the biggest 
that hall was the biggest building in Europe for centuries. I'd had a complete tour of it back in June with my wife because we became friends with Lord Booting, and he gave us a tour of the House of Lords and of that entire magnificent hall. So it's this, this incredible place. So as we're entering the hall, they kind of divided you so that one group went along the one side of the coffin, one went along the other side. Uh, tremendous silence, tremendous reverence, and, and the building is spectacular. This, this great huge uh, woodwork ceiling. It's amazing they could have done that a thousand years ago. I mean, it was one of the wonders of Europe, this building. That hall is just absolutely spectacular. And so as we strolled along, uh, there was no feeling of being rushed. There was lots of space. The cameras were very, very misleading, the TV cameras, because it's an enormous hall and they were at the far end of it. So they made it look like we were all bumping into each other. We were all getting into a bus or something. And it wasn't like that at all. It was beautifully spaced. It was beautifully done. We had a beautiful view of it as we came in and then there were some steps down and we're coming and approaching it and it all just looked magnificent. The lighting was absolutely perfect. The crown was outstanding. The jewels, the, the scepter and the orb, uh, everything. I mean, the whole thing was a magnificent scene. And so as I got to, to the middle part of it, I stopped, I turned, I faced Her Majesty. I was really quite overwhelmed with the spirit of the moment and of her, a whole bunch of images of her flashed through my mind. I gave her the deepest bow I've ever given anyone. And then I stood up again and uh, uh, I walked forward. It was all very, very serene. And whoever was behind me was far enough behind. It didn't affect them at all. And it turns out BBC live streamed the whole thing. And that the people that I'd become really good friends with, one of their friends captured the whole thing on uh, video. So I now have a complete video of me, compliments of BBC from the moment I entered the hall came down those steps, came to where the thing was and, and faced it and everything I did until I actually left. Uh, they weren't really trying to capture me, but I was the person in front for the entire time. So I could see it again and again and again. It was one of those moments in life you never forget. Uh, everything about the queen just came to me with such power at that particular moment. It was, it was one of those life events that is indelibly in your mind forever. Yes, we we can hear that in your voice. Thank you. It's it's incredible, and and um, the precision and the excellence uh, that uh, that all of the proceedings related to the morning and the funeral and and um, of the passing of the queen were was was remarkable, and you could see had been planned uh, with precision for for years. I also learned a term, uh, catafalk, where the the uh, where the coffin was placed uh, in Westminster Hall is 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 uh, is what everyone proceeded by. So you bowed, Roddy, and you talked about just being almost the power of emotion and that serenity that overcame you. Um, certainly, some of that is involved in the in the pageantry, but really. Queen Elizabeth, as both a sovereign and a person, evoked those emotions, drew you to, to line up for nine hours, along with hundreds of thousands of other people. What personal qualities to you with Queen Elizabeth II really made her that, that special person that has really captivated the world for the last 70 years? 
Well, she had an extraordinary smile. I, I watched her like at the Royal City of New Westminster, where I was city solicitor, and she was going around the city hall, and it was huge crowds, probably 35,000 people surrounding that building. But when she would look up and smile at a group, it just lit everybody up. She, she has this extraordinary smile and this twinkle in her eye and, and the beautiful blue eyes, etc. There, there's something so expressive about her face uh, that really captures people. And, and she's very much there in the moment. And that part is true too. But, but for me, the, the extraordinary thing was, was her character, which appeared to have been almost since she was a little girl. And certainly by the time 1940, when she made that speech uh, to the children of the empire that uh, were being moved out of Britain, um, she had this incredible character, this incredible caring, uh, this uh, physical presence that was uh, so in, uh, charismatic. And uh, there was just something so warm and reassuring about her. I think one of the most reassuring moments is when Prince Andrew was busily fighting down in the Falklands, but she flew across to Ottawa to sign the Canada Act with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, Justice Minister Chrétien in that famous iconic picture. And she made that wonderful speech about Canada that was so reassuring at this huge milestone. She, she, was, she was so calming. She brought a, a sense of serenity and order and, and calm. To, to every situation it, it was it was extraordinary calm and order peace order and good government very Which much is the three pillars of canada peace order and good government america's life liberty and the pursuit of happiness which is an extremely uh different uh, set of goals. Uh, that's why America is so different than Canada. And our monarchy and how deeply it's embedded into everything, our laws, our judiciary, our governance, um, is one of the reasons that we're very, very different in our values from Americans. Absolutely. It's a it's a fundamental ethos and an element of our DNA that I think we can be very proud of. And um, in my speech, honoring uh, the Queen in the House of Commons after her passing. And we'll talk a little bit about how I poached from one of your papers later. But I just talked about that role she had as 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 the constant for uh, for Canada, you know, in my my life, both as a, an officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, a, a lawyer, a cabinet minister, a member of the Privy Council. Um, I've, I've sworn so many oaths to the Queen as our our head of state and sovereign. And that constitutional monarchy has allowed us to have uh, a parliamentary democracy that is uh, is in charge of government and and runs the country. But our head of state has been um, a respected and revered figure that is not politicized. It's not a presidential function. Um, talk about that for a moment. How you think that the constitutional monarchy and that element of our of our country has really helped us develop into, I think, the the leading country of the world. Well, it's a magnificent, absolutely brilliant form of democratic government, a parliamentary democracy. And the beauty of this one is this one really goes back to King George, I'm sorry, <laughs> King John and uh, Magna Carta at about 1215. It's, uh, it's, it's centuries old in the way in which it evolved. And it's a complete separation of the state from the government, a total separation. So at the moment, Justin Trudeau may be the prime minister, but she was the queen. She was the head of state. And America, of course, uh, 
it's the same person. So right now it's Joe Biden. He's both head of state and essentially he's the head of the government. And in other countries, um, what happens is everybody knows, for instance, the chancellor of Germany. Nobody knows who the president is. In France, it's the reverse. Everybody knows who the president is. Nobody knows who the prime minister is. And um, our system has this complete separation and it works so incredibly well. And Queen Elizabeth, of course, was the perfect monarch. I mean, she she, uh, she was flawless in the way in which she executed her uh, commitments and obligations. She has the distinction of having visited Moose Jaw more than Manhattan because the queen only went where duty called and duty called to Moose Jaw a number of times. She only set that foot in Manhattan twice, once to be in a ticker tape parade with President uh, Dwight Eisenhower and wants to pay her respects to 9-11 and at the same time go to the United Nations and make an address to the General Assembly. Those are the only two times she's ever set foot in New York. Um, she came to Canada so many times, more than any other country in the world. Uh, we were unbelievably fortunate to have this person as our head of state. Absolutely. Duty and service uh, at a at a level, and she pledged her her life of service and truly lived up to it. I love that anecdote, Roddy. Uh, Moose Jaw over Manhattan. Um, who wouldn't want Moose Jaw over Manhattan, really? Particularly if you like the snowbirds. But uh, what a what a classic uh, classic little nugget of wisdom. Let's also talk about the 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 span of her reign is really remarkable. Certainly, the longest serving. Uh, British monarch, um, you know, the second longest in, in global history. But that span of time is truly incredible. From 1952, you know, in the in really the years immediately following World War II, and I've got a picture, uh, portrait of here, her in my office, created by Vancouver artist Foster Eastman and some Afghanistan war veterans, where there's a beautiful picture of Her Majesty. But uh, made up of smaller pictures of her in uniform in World War II uh, as a teenager, when she took the throne to when she passed, we saw empire transform into commonwealth. We saw early addresses in the infancy of, of television and radio turning into uh, the royal family having social media feeds. Her Her, her time on the throne was a critical one where you could have seen um, questions surrounding the monarchy and these sorts of things. Talk about how, in your mind, she adapted to the changing world, the changing commonwealth, the changing media environment. Um, she had to change with the times, but also not change. You know, as you said, that character that really uh, is so fundamental to her, the duty and honor and service above all else. Tell how she kept it all together over that 70 years. Well, it was truly extraordinary, but it's because she was completely authentic. She had a, a tremendous uh, set of parents. She was raised in a, a family that was immersed in love. Uh, King George VI was uh, an incredibly fine monarch uh, in a very, very difficult time. The Queen Mother, Adolf Hitler, said she was the most dangerous woman in Europe. And he was right because she rallied people in such a powerful way. My dad said that 
we weren't even clear what we were doing in World War II for that first year, the phony war, the, uh, the confusion, until someone asked the Queen Mother whether Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret would be shipped to Canada for safety, the way the other royal families were doing. And she said, Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret will not leave Britain unless I do. I will not leave unless the king does, and the king will never leave. Well, my dad said that was the first clear statement we got that we were in this war to win it. Uh, she was very, very much that way. And uh, and Queen Elizabeth uh, II was uh, a wonderful student of all of this. She really did absorb all that her parents were doing. And then she gets as her prime minister, the longest serving member of parliament in British history. Probably no other human being understood British parliamentary democracy better than Sir Winston Churchill. And he never had a more eager student than Queen Elizabeth, who was just most anxious to learn as much as she could possibly learn. And she really did learn a tremendous amount. But she got off to such a remarkable start uh, with Churchill. And um, then she had in total, what, uh, uh, 12 Canadian prime ministers to deal with. And uh, I believe that Liz Truss was the 15th British prime minister, plus the ones from Australia and all these other nations. And she was this extraordinary listener. She was incredibly well read and she was extremely well informed and she was very, very interested. And that came along so obviously everywhere she went and every time she spoke. Uh, she, she was truly um, magnificent. She was. And, and she was able to adapt to the times and work with all those prime ministers and, and, and really see the Commonwealth mature and grow and transform from a post-colonial um, Chamber of Commerce type organization into something that was uh, pushing, particularly with Prime Minister Mulroney in the sport. He he has talked about the Queen showing uh, on apartheid, really make some positive social change, uh, but do so in a way that she never uh, overstepped the the role of of sovereign into into politician, but but was able to to have a, a, a significant influence. Let, let's talk about that for a minute, because of course, we both share a love for Sir Winston Churchill. And in my speech, I, I talked about the the two greatest Britons, really, the the, the late Queen and 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 Churchill. Um, your your comments about the Queen Mother was reminiscent of another Churchill quote, you know, she the Queen Mother talked about the king will never leave and I will never leave. It reminds me of the the never surrender uh, and and the sort of rallying cry of Churchill. They they were almost fated to be together. Churchill was the the Queen's first Prime Minister. the The last state funeral before uh, the recent one for Queen Elizabeth was Sir Winston Churchill. So their bonds are numerous. But your paper that I stole uh, with relish from for my speech talked about a surprise encounter between Winston Churchill and a two-year-old Princess Elizabeth. Talk about that for a minute, and, and how did he record his first impression of the future queen? Well, that was 
one of those many asides that a lot of people referred to and asides are never properly researched, they're never properly looked into because when I was asked to make this presentation to the Churchill Society of British Columbia on uh, the relationship of Churchill and the Queen, I thought that would be simple. There'd be lots written on it and it turns out nothing had ever been published on it. All of it was just asides in all of these other comments. So I published the first paper on their relationship. It was in Finest Hour, the worldwide Churchill magazine. And uh, what I said was within the Churchill papers, the earliest recorded reference to the future queen is found in a letter to his wife that Churchill wrote from Balmoral Castle on the 25th of September, 1928, in which Churchill anticipates the destiny of the future sovereign. What he said to Clementine was, quote, there is no one here at all except the family, the household, and Queen Elizabeth, age two. The last is a character. She has an air of authority and reflectiveness astonishing in an infant. And what's so interesting about the quote is he inadvertently referred to her as Queen Elizabeth, uh, which is extraordinary. And yeah. it went to London that way. <laughs> well, well, so, let me let me let me stop you there for a minute because you know how uh, I'm so particular about making sure uh, I'm quoted and answered properly. And um, what what was interesting is I saw the quote and I thought, oh, this is Roddy's unintentional error or the finest hours error, because at age two, she was certainly not Queen Elizabeth. She was Princess Elizabeth. But at that time, what was fascinating, it was before the abdication. She wasn't even really destined to be on the throne at that at that moment. So do you think that is a inadvertent, you know. Well, it was an extraordinary flip. thing that Churchill did because nobody thought she'd become queen. Everybody thought Edward would have a big family, et cetera, et cetera. It would be like one of Princess Margaret's children. Um, so uh, she was never seen as to become the queen at, at that time. And yet that's what he ended up saying in his letter to Clementine. Unbelievable. And he was struck by someone that was that small. Yeah, already. And, and reflectiveness astonishing in an in, in an infant. And well, I've seen the pictures of the queen in a carriage going to church with her grandparents, King George V and Queen Mary. The um, Claims magazine said that Queen Mary had a stare that could quell a riot at 50 yards. But when you see these two in this carriage together, the Queen Elizabeth, as uh, this little girl, three and four years old, had essentially the same posture, the same carriage, the same presence as Queen Mary, the most formidable person in the entire British Empire. I mean, uh, so right from the beginning, she had this aura about her uh, a very definite aura of authority yes yes um talk about then how their their relationship developed by that after that happenstance meeting at Balmoral um when did they intersect again or you know what other anecdotes do you have from that early relationship between the queen? Well, uh, when the king died and, and now this person down in Kenya, Princess Elizabeth, was queen, uh, initially Rosa, uh, uh, Churchill was quite upset. Uh, he, he hardly knew her. He saw her as being a child. She wasn't, uh, he wasn't aware of how she would react to him. They actually had very, very little contact. So these people were somewhat as strangers when they came together uh, at that moment in 1952. But somehow the uh, the chemistry between them was extraordinary. All the reports say that when they had their prime ministerial meetings, there were gales of laughter. They thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. Uh, she had a deep, deep, deep admiration for him. And she also, she always looked at the long view. I mean, Churchill used 
this, uh, he, he, the only reason he was prime minister is because Clement Attlee, after defeating him soundly in two general elections of 1945 and 1950, called a snap election in October of 51 because he wanted to increase his majority of Labour members because certain sects of the party were becoming a problem. Well, it was just one of those fluke things. Uh, um, Attlee did get more votes, but uh, Churchill somehow got more seats in just the way things work. And so everybody's astonished including Churchill's, he was prime minister again. And that was in October. And then the king dies on the 6th of February. Well, the idea was Churchill was prime minister, but he was going to resign almost immediately um, because uh, he'd really reached the end of his, his time as leader of the party. But he used the coronation, which he strung out for, what, almost 18 months. Um, the Queen dryly remarked on that once, just how long that went for, because he wanted to stay in office as prime minister. So she had to show an incredible tolerance uh, in her dealings with him, and uh, and it affected things such as the world's longest space between um, uh, the, the becoming queen and actually the coronation as queen, and then he stayed on after that. It wasn't until finally, I think it was January 55 when he finally resigned. Um, so um, she learned skills of taking the long view that has served her so well throughout. She's never gotten caught in the moment of um, uh, immediate urgent type political crisis or something like that. She had an ability to see the long view and she certainly saw it with Churchill and she treated him incredibly graciously and he certainly was deeply in love with her. Yeah, what is fascinating is both of them, I guess, were accidental occupants of their office at one point through the, the passage of events and time. You know, it's like the old expression, events, dear boy, events, um, you know, and you don't have to explain to me that sometimes somebody can get more votes, uh, uh, but not more seats. And, and no, <laughs> that, 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 that's still that's still raw, Roddy. So uh, yeah. but listen, I the other quote I stole, which I thought was just magnificent, was in that long coronation wait. Um, Churchill addressed the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association that had gathered just before the coronation. So Canadian prime minister, you know, prime ministers and 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 distinguished gathering here. He said this, quote, here today, we salute 50 or 60 parliaments and one crown. It is natural for parliaments to talk and for the crown to shine, end quote. I thought that was a magnificent uh, way to 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 describe his his fascination, as you said, his love with the queen uh, for the queen. And 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 I tried to say in my tribute to her just how much uh, she did shine throughout the 70 years, uh, whether in Moose Jaw uh, or, or in Manitoba or in uh, all parts between Vancouver Island and Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, talk about uh, what you think. Did Did that time early on with Churchill help her see the long term? You do really think? Oh, I think it helped her enormously on everything. There, I don't think there was a human being that existed that understood this absolutely unique form of evolved government. It was no none of, no codified anything. The English common law and, 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 and parliamentary democracy with a monarch that the Churchill 
I mean, he really thoroughly understood Parliament far better probably than any other human being ever. And she had the brains to recognize that. And she was just so eager to learn. I think she learned so much. But one of the other interesting things when he was making that quote that you mentioned a few sentences earlier, he did point out that actually Canada declared her queen in our proclamation of accession 24 hours before anybody else, including Britain. So at one point, the only place where she was officially proclaimed queen was in Canada, and it was a full day before it happened in Britain. So I guess we could say she was our queen slightly, slightly before theirs. Um, Which is precisely what Churchill himself says. He says that, uh, uh, that she has so stirred the only part of our Commonwealth she's yet been able to visit. She's already been acclaimed as Queen of Canada. And tomorrow, the proclamation of her sovereignty will command her loyalty of her native land and the other parts of the British Commonwealth and Empire. That's how he put it. Yeah. So we were a full day ahead of everyone else. And he made a big deal of that in his speech. And when uh, talk for a minute about the the uh, retirement of, of Churchill and eventually his 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 death and his funeral, certainly um, she wrote a touching note to to Churchill when when he did retire and then showed a remarkable uh, uh gesture to his family at the funeral. Talk about both for a moment, Roddy. Yes, yes. Um, Everything about the funeral was without precedent. Um, And as you say, it's the most recent state funeral until her own state funeral. It was that unusual. Um, She uh, she entered the church before the Churchill family, etc. There's a number of things that she did uh, that were just... uh, unheard of, but were very, very much um, part of the the enormous respect for him. And also, she was um, able to uh, recognize just how incredibly um, important um, uh, he was to the British people and to people throughout uh, uh, the Commonwealth as well. And so um, she was able to see that with a tremendous tremendous clarity and 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 to express it um and she did that again and again and again with so many other major world events where she just captured us so perfectly for me the most recent one really is when she gave that address in march of 2020 telling us all about the um pandemic lockdown and comparing it to things that had happened in the war etc and she made that famous phrase when she was speaking to britain canada and the entire commonwealth when she said my hope when this pandemic is over we can all look back with pride on how we behaved and i really got stuck with that i i made a major effort through the pandemic to do that. Yes, and uh, the vast, vast majority of our citizenry did. And uh, there's another point where rallying uh, uh, her her subjects, the Canadians, and 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 really the world uh, at a time that it needed that that order, that service, that character of of Her Majesty. So. Look, you know, we got into a a, a Churchill sidebar, um, at, which I th- I find just so fascinating, um, and I think um, it kind of shows the the end of an era where um, she was a queen whose whose uh, reign spanned uh, Churchill to to Liz Truss, um, and you know the changing world. 
What is well, the another future? Way, another way of looking at that, another way of looking at it is Churchill, of course, was born on the 30th of November, 1874. And just 18 days later, Prime Minister Mackenzie King was born. He and Churchill were only about 18 days apart in age. So her first prime minister was born in 1874. Liz Truss was born in 1975. So her final prime minister was born 101 years after her first prime minister. It's completely remarkable. And it, as I said, it spanned uh, empire to Commonwealth eras, the media age. Um, it truly is remarkable. So let's look forward now, Roddy. We have uh, a new sovereign, King Charles III, um, who, uh, with the record-setting reign of, of his mother, um, set a record for uh, a Prince of Wales and someone uh, waiting in, in succession. Um, talk about what you think he may bring uh, as as king? Will there be a change? There's been a lot of talk about a, a sort of streamlining of 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 the royal family, royal duties, the monarchy, uh, and maybe a different focus. There's been some people suggesting maybe he might become slightly political on on issues like the environment or heritage. Uh, what do you foresee uh, with his reign? I have always really admired Prince Charles uh, over the years, and I think he's done a number of things that are, are incredibly impressive, even though he took a lot of abuse for the things that he did. Uh, so far, as king, from what I can see, every move has been absolute perfection. He's got an extremely reassuring presence. Uh, he's got the best training that anybody has ever had ever to take over this particular position. Uh, he has a thorough understanding of exactly how it works, exactly what it means. He appears to share his mother's deep admiration for the Commonwealth. He's got very high opinion of Canada. Uh, and he is authentic. This person is really authentic. He's a person of great depth on the environment. Uh, he's a person that uh, opened my eyes to the realities of Indigenous Canadians, particularly the Blackfoot in Alberta back in the 1970s. You know, he's the one that made me aware of all these treaty violations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I can't help but feel that uh, he will have a very good pulse on the people, a very, very good understanding of how the place evolves. Because one of the things about the uh, queue that is so important is that cue was an exact replication of British society. Uh, if anything, whites were in a minority in the queue, if anything. I mean, uh, every skin color was there. Every age from the youngest to the oldest was there. Every religious group was there. It was a complete picture of British society that was in that queue. And uh, I think that Prince Charles has had an extraordinary record of inclusiveness in his life and his prince's trust and all that it's done. And he has this remarkable son, uh, William. Uh, I, I think that the monarchy is in incredibly good shape. And I'm seeing that the early polls say that uh, the approval rating for Prince Charles in Canada is in the 70% range. Also, when he made that trip for the Platinum Jubilee to Canada, he caught the media and the government totally by surprise by the crowd. The enthusiasm of the crowds, the youth of the crowds, nobody saw that coming. Um, they wanted to see their future king. And so there is a magic there that I think Prince Charles will very, very much uphold. Absolutely. And I do think, you know, um, obviously big shoes to fill, to, to use a sort of quaint expression, um, but someone that's 
that studied how the queen performed knows knows the rules knows the duties um and really as you said that cue with its diversity with its respect with the order and sort of really patriotic flavor of 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 people coming out to to show respect to the queen lying in state um there was no politicization there's no electing the head of state you kind of see built into that the the stability of a constitutional monarchy but speak for a second as a lawyer you know you you sometimes see the the headlines about a poll saying this or Canadians want to change from a from a constitutional and legal standpoint changing our constitutional monarchy would essentially be like a reset of our entire country and its structure um it we should embrace it not only because it's produced the great country and its stability its service it's it, it's an amazing link to the to our history and and a path to the future but changing it would be a disaster that would make Meech Lake look like a, a quick coffee chat. What Speak about that for a moment. Well, I think, first of all, because of the Canada Act, um, and that was Pierre Trudeau of all people, um, the, uh, it's, it's essentially politically impossible to change that in Canada. You have to have the unanimous, you have to have the support of the House of Commons and the Senate, but also every province, all 10 provinces, all three territories, etc., which I think is essentially politically impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you'd have a massive political will to even attack it. And as Gordon Campbell, when he was Premier of British Columbia, told me, um, when the Queen arrives, suddenly the crowds are all super friendly. Suddenly Suddenly everybody is in such a good mood <laughs> that a politician be out of their minds to let go of the monarchy and, and just descend into what happens is political warfare all the time on everything. Um, the monarchy brings joy. It brings happiness. It brings togetherness. It creates crowds that are wonderful. I had my eight-year-old boy with me when she dropped the puck, you know, in uh, Vancouver. And we had lineups a couple of blocks long to get through security. Nobody minded. It was just after 9-11. Nobody wanted anything to happen to the Queen. They had a band down there on the ice that was playing. They had all this stuff. But the minute the Queen appeared at the at the boards with uh, Wayne Gretzky, the cheering was all the way out to the center. It was the whole time she was at the center. She expertly dropped the puck. She's kept the puck. It's in Windsor Palace, uh, Windsor Castle. And back again, it was just a sustained uh, ovation for the Queen. And there's no political figure that has ever managed to generate uh, that level of enthusiasm, that intensity, et cetera, et cetera. So, A, it's essentially politically impossible. We could find that we're a monarchy long after Britain isn't because of the way we're structured. Um, um, and secondly, it's just such a marvelous idea. Yeah. Well, let, and let me say, um, we're recording this a day before the we commemorate the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Um, the Crown is also our link to uh, our treaty relationship with many First Nations and with Indigenous Canadians who viewed uh, Queen Victoria as the as, as the great mother in 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 uh, at the time. Um, that's another element of this relationship that often gets overlooked beyond the Constitution. Is the Crown and those those constitutional and treaty rights also flow and are supported through our our constitutional monarchy? And it's it's been good that King Charles 
when he was Prince of Wales, uh, really made that part of the focus, uh, whether it was uh, touring um, uh, Blackfoot uh, uh, Confederacy in areas in Alberta, whether touring the communities struck by by fires, um, he he's made that a focus, and that and that might help us in the path to reconciliation. Well, that's right. He's been the crown has been very very protective of the um, indigenous peoples, and the queen has always made them a priority on every trip. And as I say, Prince Charles, that it was astonishing the things that he said, and it certainly opened my eyes. But also, they've been protective of the the French fact as well. I mean, um, without the crown, we could have ended up with another Louisiana. Uh, uh, the the crown is the stabilizing force that has protected a number of the the minorities, etc. And people like that and um uh that's also really really important so that the majority doesn't trample everyone else absolutely i i think we've had uh, um a, a realization and part of my speech i gave in in french uh talking about how uh, our system and our constitutional market monarchy helped a, an island of of 7 million uh, French-speaking, mainly Quebecers, but Francophones across Canada survive in an ocean of 300 million uh, in, influenced by the United States, the most voracious culture and, and uh, in the world. We have a strong and proud uh, uh, French and English history, and then, of course, a very multicultural society. So I think that uniqueness of our constitutional monarchy next to our friends in the Republic uh, really has allowed us to to stay unique to ourselves, protect culture, and 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 really safeguard our identity as a country. Um, well, any other reflections uh, you'd like to to share on on the Queen Roddy or or your whole whole experience uh, and the mourning and her passing um, as we well, close the off two, this, this guys. There's two things, and the first one is uh, I taped all the television coverage for Canada uh, so that when I got back, I could watch it and see what was going on. And I was very struck by the number of Indigenous leaders in Canada that spoke up and said, point blank, our treaties were with the Crown. They weren't with Ottawa. They were with the Crown. And uh, they had enormous respect for Queen Elizabeth. And they realized that, uh, that that was where this all came from. And secondly, we have this unbelievable form of government where We've got uh, the federal government, we have the provincial government, but neither is the creature of the other. Both got their powers from the crown, not from one another. If we didn't have that, if we just had Ottawa, for example, uh, we'd be five different countries by now. Australia would be four or five countries. South Africa might be 10 countries. India might be 20 countries. It's, it's an amazing concept, a brilliant concept, but it's all based on the crown. Absolutely. The crown is the constant that has served us well, and I believe will serve us well. And we've now been able to, in our small way on the Blue Skies political podcast, uh, pay tribute to Queen Elizabeth II and her remarkable life, her remarkable reign, her remarkable character with uh, with someone that has just evoked the spirit of what uh, of what that commemoration in the morning was in in London. So thank you very much, Roddy, for being a part of this special tribute episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for including me. Well, that was the Blue Skies tribute to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, a life that we can learn a lot from. 
service above self, character, as Roddy said, being a defining element of leadership, a comforting role, and a constant that has helped us through the modern changing times of our country, the central link, as Churchill described to Commonwealth's heads of government before her, com- her coronation. Queen is dead, long live the king. Thanks for tuning in to this Blue Skies podcast. 